welcome to Farm Bureau on the Hill. I'm Amy Beckham, and joining me for our legislative update, our kind of adjourning legislative update, is someone who has carried us through the entire legislative session since January, Miss Shelby Benoy. And she has done an excellent job of updating us all throughout the legislative session. And so we welcome her today to give a wrap up of what has kind of happened since January um, to close us out for the legislative session. So are you relieved that things are finally over? We did it. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Um, I feel like post-session depression is a real thing. I'm not sure what to do with my hands or my time anymore. But the constant uh, sense of looming that something has gone wrong and we are uh, being left out of the loop is, is not as heavy coming into this week. So I'm very thankful for that. And I'm glad that part of this journey has been with you, Ames. Aw, thanks. Well, uh, y'all have had uh, just a crazy roller coaster the past few months. And I would say it was a little crazy even last week since we recorded our last podcast. So last week, if you listened... You heard from Shelby live at the Capitol giving an update on where we were at on Thursday, but then they ended up adjourning late Friday night. So we want to recap our priority issues, and the first one that we want to talk about is Greenbelt. So that's our priority issue on Greenbelt and how it relates to conservation programs. So what ended up happening with that legislation, Shelby? Last time we checked in, I think we were waiting on Greenbelt to be heard on the House floor, and it did. It was heard. Representative Hurt presented that bill shortly after we wrapped up last week's podcast and it passed the House floor unanimously. So it passed both chambers unanimously. And once it gets the appropriate signatures in the House and Senate, it is headed to the governor's desk. So we can finally close the book on that one. Very good. And the next one is our constitutional amendment on prohibiting a statewide property tax. And I think the last time you gave us an update, it had been read one or two times. I'm not sure. So did it get the final reading and what's the status? <laughs> it did. So on, t- on Thursday last week, it had its second reading and one was reset for Friday's calendar. Friday, they read it for a third time and then went straight to a vote and it passed the house 81 to 11. And if you'll recall from previous podcasts we've talked about that this year it just has to pass both the house and the senate with a simple majority however it passed well with over two-thirds support so i think that's a really good sign for how things look in the house and it'll pick up the baton in january in the senate and we will start that process all over again so it'll have to go through committee in the senate and then make its way to the floor where it'll have to be read three times there and then reset for the the calendar, just like we went through. Um, And then it will have to pass in the Senate with a simple majority. And then we will uh, pick up the pieces and plan for 2025. And again, just want to reemphasize that it is okay that it hasn't gone through the Senate because this is Mm -hmm. just the first half of the 113th General Assembly. And so we have the second half next year where it can go through the Senate and hopefully have a simple majority and then we can move right along like Shelby was saying. And we've got two other constitutional amendments that they're considering in the General Assembly. So we're right on track with those other two. We don't we don't feel like we're behind on any of it because all of the constitutional amendments are in that posture right now. Just kind of how things went this year. And that's it kind of is what it is. And all is well on that 
on that front. So another issue that wasn't necessarily a priority issue, but I would say that we adopted it as one of our priority <laughs> issues is de-annexation. So did that end up making its final way through? I know we had some hiccups, not some hiccups, but we just had some changes and things that needed to be done. Yes. So it, it did make its way through. And this is something that although we did not set it as a priority issue this year, it has been something that our public policy team has been working on for years since 2014 when annexation by ordinance was first prohibited this has kind of been a continuation of that conversation so every year I feel like they've gotten one step closer but I am so pleased to say that we have finally gotten it across the finish line and we did have to go to a conference committee on that I think I might have explained that last week but if you missed it a conference committee is just when the house version and the senate version are different and they have to come together after it bounces back and forth a few times the house and the senate elect a conference committee made up of a couple members on each side of the chamber they come together and discuss the differences and and try to get one final clean version that is then represented on both the house and senate floor um and if it's okay amy we've talked about it in the alert but i'd like to kind of hit the differences of course yeah um, so previously, it the language that we have kind of been describing said that heirs of the annexed property could uh, be eligible to de-annex the property. We've changed that phrase to direct descendant. It really doesn't change anything as far as what the language looks like, but it now explicitly defines that it is a child, grandchild, or sibling. So hopefully that will provide some clarification. In regard to, there's several things that are grounds for de-annexation per this legislation. So if you were forcibly annexed prior to 2014, if you're along a city boundary, and then there are some others that the House version defined, um, one of those came from the conference committee report that you would have had to have filed with the IRS either a Schedule F or your farm rental income document for at least three years. Um, And other requirements include that uh, you have to be doing something that meets the definition of agriculture that's in code. That was an issue that Farm Bureau put in code uh, several years ago. Um, So you have to be doing something to meet the definition of agriculture. You have to have your tax exempt status as uh, registered by the state's Department of Revenue. So you have to tell the federal government you farm by Schedule F. You have to tell the state government that you farm via your tax exempt. And then you also have to be enrolled in Greenbelt, both at the time you were annexed as well as currently. And one thing that the conference committee report discussion included was, you know, there are some folks that were annexed prior to 1977 when Greenbelt was created in law. So we, they added a provision that would just state that if you, if you were annexed prior to 1977, that specific provision doesn't apply to you. Um, but if you file Schedule F or farm rental income, you have your tax-exempt code, you meet the definition of agriculture, and if it applies to you, you are enrolled in Greenbelt and you were enrolled in Greenbelt, then at that point you could petition the city to be de-annexed from the municipal boundary. That is it. It's a, it was a, it was a big bill, and the conference committee report's lengthy, and I, I feel like there are several steps, but we've listed all of that out in writing, on this week's alert. So, if something I said doesn't make sense, or you just want to go back and have something to reference or screenshot, and then be able to talk that through and see if 
this bill may be applicable to you, I would encourage you to go check that out in the alert. It is a very complex issue, or at least sounds Mm -hmm. that way uh, to my ears right now. So, (laughs) So we would encourage you to for sure look at your legislative alert and read more into details about that. So along with de-annexation, there were plenty of other issues that we didn't necessarily have on our priority list, but we were adamant that the listeners needed to hear about it and it was also of high interest to our members so I think we need to do a rundown of those and we might have repeated ourselves some from last week but we just want to make sure that we kind of wrap everything up put a nice bell on everything and so let's start with Shelby the farmers market bill and I think we covered all of this last week but it did pass both the house and senate correct Mm -hmm. and it not only passed the house it unanimously passed the house so we could not be more thankful for that bipartisan effort Uh, to allow producers to serve samples at the farmers markets now. A very good piece of legislation for farmers and producers who sell at farmers markets, no doubt. So the next one is the state meat inspection program. And I know we don't have a formal position on this, but did the bill make it across the finish line? It did. So that was one of those bills that I think all of the discussion started after our podcast ended last week. Okay, but interesting. It unanimously passed the Senate and passed the House 85 to 9. And this is one of the many changes that I think the Department of Agriculture is going to have to navigate over uh, the coming year with this program. And then they've got some new changes come into their hemp program there as well. But so it did pass and it was effective uh, upon becoming a law. Very good. Well, something else we didn't get to talk about on this podcast, I don't think really at all this session, but because of how quickly things developed last week on this issue alone, let's talk about xylazine. Our cattle producers may recognize this term and have had it on hand for sedation, but can you talk about what the new changes going to affect are? Yeah, this is a good example of one of those things that we thought had kind of been put to bed early on in session. So we didn't really feel the need to take a position or get involved or take action on it, but it came back in the last 48 hours and it received funding in the budget that they passed. And so how does that happen? Like, how does that happen? <laughs> well, sometimes it happens on purpose and then sometimes it just unintentionally yeah. happens. But this was one of those things that the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation has been working on. And they had started that conversation at the beginning of session and our friends at the Vet Medicine Association had some concerns, rightfully so, because it is used predominantly for veterinarian purposes. So I think they had kind of put a pause on those conversations and the Senate sponsor had said, you know, if if all parties are not comfortable, I'm not going to move forward. Well, then we found out that the bill um, had received funding. So the fiscal note was not really an issue anymore. So the bill kind of regrew legs and started moving again. Um, And super big shout out to both the TBI and the TVMA, the Vet uh, Medicine Association. They kind of handled the bulk of the negotiating. And we were just kind of a, a supportive partner in it because we... We have policy that kind of leans on both sides of the argument. And so what this bill, it's been titled the One Pill Will Kill Act, and it addresses just the epidemic that is opioid abuse in Tennessee. And what we have heard is that there has been recent drugs on the, in the illegal market that folks are cutting fentanyl with xylazine and Narcan, which is what something that we've advocated for 
you know, all local EMSs and, and police departments to have on hand to try to combat the opioid epidemic. Narcan does not affect xylazine in a body. So it's it's has irreversible effects and has kind of caused an uptick in deaths for overdose. So what this does is it creates a misdemeanor offense to knowingly possess xylazine and a further felony offense if you're going to manufacture, deliver it, sell it, or have the intent to do so with the drug xylazine. However, what the TVMA has done such a good job of championing and working on is that if you possess, manufacture, deliver, or sell xylazine in the course of a legitimate veterinary practice, or if you have a prescription from a legitimate veterinarian, then you're exempt from the felony and the misdemeanor. Like I mentioned, we have policy on both that we support strengthening the penalty on um, using, selling, or manufacturing synthetic drugs because we acknowledge how bad the opioid epidemic is. Uh, but we also have policy that acknowledges that laws and regulations pertaining to veterinary practices should not discourage or inhibit large animal practices. And because xylazine is used in the cattle industry, we were kind of put in a spot where we were cheering on both sides. We weren't trying to stop the effort from happening, but uh, definitely wanted to make sure that our large animal and livestock producers are safe and have the ability to access the drugs that they need in order to do their job. So shout out to those folks for negotiating that. And uh, because that was kind of a last minute development, I thought that would be something to kind of get into the weeds on yeah. for this podcast. But so to just reiterate, if you have a prescription for xylazine to be used for veterinary purposes and a veterinarian has written you that prescription, uh, you would be exempt from those offenses. However, it just kind of strengthens law that's currently on the books that keeps um, illicit drugs out of the hands of people across Tennessee. Gotcha. Makes sense. Thanks for updating on us on that issue that for sure impacts cattle producers. So, um, so in order to have all of these legislative priorities put into place, some of them have to be funded. We talked about quite a few that have to be funded, and that brings us to the topic of the budget. And so last week when we recorded, the budget had been passed, if I remember correctly. And so because of that, any any last updates in terms of the budget? Is, is all well for the upcoming fiscal year? I think the last time we had recorded... The budget had been passed, but we hadn't had a chance to digest everything okay. that the budget had funded. Gotcha. Um, and we've gone over the governor's the budget that he unveiled in his right. state of the state, and we've I think we've talked about the administration's amendment to the budget when it was presented in committee a few weeks ago. Uh, there are a few changes, though, that have kind of come from that final document. So what happens is the legislature takes the governor's proposed budget, they take their priority issues for their legislative efforts, and they combine the two. And there's some negotiating that happens over the weekend and, and, and late into the evening as far as trying to get that final document. Uh, but I'll just hit the high points on some things that I think will matter to our folks back at home. Um, one of the biggest things that we've talked about, especially in the last few few weeks is school safety. Previously, the governor had allocated uh, $20 million for public schools to hire SROs in their schools and $7 million for private schools to enter grants that would allow them to have a school resource officer. The legislature doubled that amount. So now it's $40 million for public schools and $14 million for private schools. So they're 
continuing to invest in strengthening our schools and, and providing those resource officers in the classroom. Some things relative to the world of agriculture. So $4 million has been appropriated for FFA Camp Clements um, for renovations and some much needed upgrades there in Doyle, Tennessee. Um, also $250,000 for Cultivate Programming, which is housed in the Department of Agriculture. Also some things that the Department of Ag is big supporters of, $400,000 to the Farm to Tap program and $100,000 for the Wine and Grape Board. And one thing that I thought was really interesting for a high school up in East Tennessee, $580,000 to Granger County High School um, for them to build a cattle working facility. So I think that'll be a really cool opportunity and maybe something that we can visit, yeah. go visit next time we're in East Tennessee and, and do a story on that. So um, continuing to invest in agriculture programs and everything that we've talked about, you know, we, we mentioned the Ag, the Ag Enterprise Fund. Uh, was going to receive a huge investment, $17.5 million. That's still in the budget. Everything I'm listing are additions to what we've talked about. Um, in education, $125 million is going towards teacher raises. And with that, the governor has vowed to make the minimum salary for educators $50,000 by 2026. I think that will put Tennessee in the top 10 for pay for educators. So glad to see that investment. Some other things that impact rural Tennessee, $110 million has been taken out of 10 care reserves uh, for the purpose of hospitals to cover some of those uncompensated care costs. Lots of investment for grants for rescue squads, volunteer fire departments, and EMS. Uh, $3 million for rescue squads, $5 million for volunteer fire departments, and $2 million for EMS equipment. And all of that money is to improve their infrastructure. So if it's supplies, things that they need in order to be able to provide that crucial service that they provide. And then a, another big thing for folks just all across Tennessee is there's going to be a three-month sales tax holiday for groceries. Um, August through October. So you won't have to pay sales tax on groceries for those three months. So if you are a bulk Stock shopper, up. yeah, if you're a bulk shopper, that's your time to do that. Um Overall, though, the, the budget price tag still comes in at $56.2 billion. That's exactly what last year's budget came, came in at. So we're kind of keeping the same tracks. And that includes a $404 million worth of tax cuts and a $250 million deposit into the state's rainy day fund to prepare for um, inevitably when those hard times fall upon us. So um, it's extremely well-written budget and streamlined and thankful that it is not the reason why we were there late into the night, as it has been in years past, but I'm just excited to see some of this programming come to fruition and, and see what um, our folks can do with this money. And something that we haven't covered in that is, I feel like, what Governor Lee is focused on transportation. Um, and we don't necessarily have to cover that today because we have covered it in some other podcasts, but I would just encourage you. Our Farm Bureau newspaper is about to hit mailboxes, and if you receive that, there is a big article in y'all's policy post that touches on all things transportation. Remind me of what the, wasn't there legislation that, there, there was, was. That called? 
So it was the Transportation Modernization yes. Act. Okay. And it had a $3.3 billion price tag total investment. So huge, largest investment in Tennessee history. So I would encourage you when that comes out to read that if you're interested in it. It does have some kind of big changes for the transportation system in Tennessee. And so they do a really good job of explaining that. It will also be on our website under our policy and action tab um, under our resources as their little policy post. So I'll just plug that real quick. We don't have to go into any details about it. Um, but anything else, we're going to move into questions next. But before we do, Shelby, anything else that we need to, to kind of look at? I feel like we've covered covered everything that's happened yeah. since January. So <laughs> We would encourage you uh, to go back and listen to any podcast if you have any questions about it. Feel free to reach out to us and we can forward exactly which ones, which one, if you're looking for a specific topic, we can kind of give you an idea of which one we should encourage you to listen. And before we go into those questions, Shelby, um, it's, n- it's not looking like maybe this is going to be our last <laughs> one, as you might wish. There is some talk about a special session. Um, is that correct? That's right. So I, when we left on Friday night, we had already kind of been hearing murmurings that the governor was going to call the legislature back for special session. So typically the last day of session kind of feels like the last day of school minus the yearbook signing. And <laughs> it was kind of sad because it wasn't goodbye it was just I guess we'll see you in a few weeks but um, the governor does intend to call the legislature back for a special session the details as far as what his priority legislation is going to look like and the specific dates for that weren't are still kind of up in the air they're developing but um, from what we understand and from his press release it's going to be all relative towards uh, public safety and constitutional rights so still kind of continuing the discussion on um, all things safety in schools and just safety for Tennesseans. So saying that, we are going to make a point to keep our listeners, whomever, updated on what's happening. Obviously, it's not a special session for agriculture, but it is um, a session nonetheless. And so y'all will be up there following along, making sure that nothing crosses our policy. Is that safe to say? That's right. Yeah. Does that makes sense. A lot of, I feel like what we do, we, we do pass really good bills that we've talked about today, but so much of that is reading the other bills and making sure that there are no unintended consequences for our members. Yep. So I would imagine we will spend lots of time doing just that. Yep. That flows in extremely well to our first question that we received. So last week we said uh, text questions to a certain number and we'd be happy to answer them. And so our first question is regarding that when we have policy regarding a particular issue what does that mean for me as a farmer when I have a problem related to that issue and how does that policy help me so you kind of answered it there but if you want to expand any more on it go for it yeah and I think what this question is kind of leaning towards is that there are some things in our resolutions book that they have transformed into specific legislation that specifically addresses that policy. Sometimes that's the whole reason why that language gets put into our policy book is so then our team can go to Nashville and see that put into action through the form of a bill. However, sometimes they're just statements, either statements of support or opposition or how the general consensus of our membership feels. So it it doesn't always mean that just because we have a policy that legislation is going to be enacted as a result. However, I think that's helpful for when we're not in session. If you have a question or if you're having an issue with a particular entity or subject matter and you want to know how Farm Bureau feels about it and if there's anything we can do to help, 
I think that's why those other pieces of policy are there. I mean, if you have read the resolutions book, it is pages upon pages and covers everything from healthcare to education to uh, crop insurance to any commodity you can imagine. And although we may not have policy that would translate directly into a piece of legislation, we do have position statements on things. And that's kind of how we get involved with bills that are non-priority issues. So I think the de-annexation mm-hmm. is a prime example of yeah. that this session. That's something that, you know, we've had in our policy for, for years and when the bills like that arise, we feel obligated to support because our members have been so passionate about that. And on the reciprocal of that, if there's something that comes up that our membership has just said, we under no circumstances will support X, Y, Z, it gives us a vehicle to say on behalf of the Farm Bureau community as a whole, we're opposed to that. And here's why. Yeah. Makes total sense. So we had two questions come in from Sumner County and they were both um, asking about specific legislation that they discussed, the members in Sumner County discussed with their lawmakers during our bell ringer. And so one question, we'll take both of them kind of separately, Shelby, but one question was regarding legislation to do with class size in school. Can you give us an update on what happened with that and kind of what that entailed in general as a whole? Yeah, so what the bill was, it was Senator Lundberg and Representative Moody had a bill that would kind of change the way that a local education agency looks at class sizes. And I think there was some confusion early on in session because it was a caption bill and caption bills, if you're not familiar, it, it could be an extremely broad subject uh, relative to the topic. And then there's an amendment that comes later that is much more specific to what the sponsor is trying to accomplish. So what this bill would have done is allow for a, a school, a local, an LEA to exceed their average class size. So for example, if a CTE class, the class cap is 25, but their class average is 22, it would allow them to exceed their class average. However, if they wanted to exceed that class cap, then they would have to get approval. And it would kind of streamline how that approval process works. So there's not students and teachers hanging in limbo. Um, We kind of we got involved with it just because we have an interest. A lot of our members are either graduates of a CTE program or CTE teachers themselves. And so rightfully so, they had some concerns. And we met with Senator Lundberg and expressed our concerns. And he kind of shared in that that same and described the amendment to us. But unfortunately, that bill failed in the House in the Education Subcommittee. So because it has failed in one chamber, it will not be able to come back next year they would have to have a new bill drafted to address that so i believe it was uh, house bill 809 and senate bill 197 because the house version did fail in subcommittee um that conversation has kind of been put to bed for the year good to know okay the second legislation that they were asking about is one to do with green belt not our priority issue but another one so can you tell us about that legislation So I think the one they're talking about is House Bill 341, Senate Bill 1332. And similar to the education bill, this was a wide open caption that would directly deal with property assessors and the the Greenbelt provision, the Agriculture, Forest, and Open Space uh, Land Act. We had a conversation with the sponsors of this bill. This is one of those ones that when we saw it hit the bill tracking system that we were like, oh, 
what in the world is this bill doing? Yeah. We need to go meet with these folks and figure out what their plan is. And uh, we had a really good conversation with uh, Speaker Pro Temp Hale and Chairman Paul Bailey and some members of the Comptroller's Office. And I think we've kind of all agreed that there does need to be a discussion about Greenbelt in general. There's really not been a lot of change since the 70s, mid 80s uh, when Greenbelt was established. So I think this bill was a good vehicle to start that conversation and we're going to continue that through the summer. But as far as the specifics of what this bill does, um, there there are none yet, but stay tuned because there could be more developments um, over the next year and even into the 114th General Assembly. But kudos to you for checking in those bills and and keeping up with them throughout the beginning of session till now. All right, moving along to the next question. That question says, we have addressed the land loss due to solar sites and subdivisions, but there are manufacturers and companies moving to Tennessee. So is there a threshold established with that growth to prevent losing prime farmland? For example, the battery plant in Spring Hill. So is there a threshold, Shelby? I... I don't think there is. And I think that's kind of part of the issue that we're working to address here is growth and local governments and their ability to manage that growth. That's been something that has just kind of been our theme for this legislative session. And because there is not a cap or a fee placed on growth, there's no good way to do to prevent that. And that's kind of the conversation that's been started last year and I know the Department of Agriculture and and Farm Bureau and the University of Tennessee's Institute of Agriculture have been having that conversation specific to farmland but I think that theme is going to continue throughout the summer and into next January about you know growth is no longer adequately paying for growth what are we going to do to address that while preserving that crucial farmland. And it's some topics that for sure We heard them a lot last year at our policy development meetings, but if that is a growing concern, which we think it is, but as a member, as a farmer, if that is a growing concern to you, then we would highly encourage you to come to our policy development meetings and voice those concerns. Um, Because that's how the policy gets developed and how it eventually goes to Nashville. So it is. And it's such a hard topic that I don't know that one bill would fix that. You know, this is something that is going to have repercussions for years upon years if it's not done correctly so I think we're we're trying to play chess and not checkers on addressing growth and I don't even know how to play chess so we're just we're (laughs) trying to take it all in one bite at a time and um, trying to do the best thing for both landowners and those business and industries that want to come to Tennessee because we have such a good business climate. That's a good way to put it. So the last question we have is, what is the timeline for the state meat inspections to be available at local processors? So this has to do with the issue that we talked about in this podcast earlier, um, the state meat inspection service. So what what is the timeline for that, Shelby? For that to be such a simple question, it does kind of have a complex oh answer. So the bill itself has will take effect upon becoming law. So as soon as the governor signs it and it becomes a public chapter, then it's law. Um, however, there's a lot that the Department of Agriculture is going to have to do in order to begin to implement this. So if it's something that you're excited about seeing put into place, I would encourage you to maybe have a little patience and some grace with the folks at the department because this is, it's it's not new territory in, form, in the form of inspecting processors and and 
serving inspected meat product, but it is new territory for them because this is something that the department has never had their hand in the game on. This has kind of been something that USDA has always championed. So it is a multi-year process and the way the bill is written right now, it is eligible for intrastate commerce only. So you can't sell across state lines. However, when the USDA comes in and inspects the inspection process, so to speak, I think at that point, then the legislature can come back and say, okay, I think we're ready to go into the interstate commerce space. So this is, it is not going to be, you know, you're not going to turn around tomorrow and have this process just clean cut out there for you. If you're a cattle producer looking for a processor, or if you're a processor yourself, I, I would encourage everybody not to be discouraged. It is, it is new in, in Tennessee agriculture and we're going to be right there along the department trying to figure out, you know, what exactly is going on. So then we can communicate that back to you all. So be encouraged, but also be patient. (laughs) Yes, both. (laughs) At the same time. All right. Well, that concludes our questions. And I think that concludes our big issues that we wanted to talk about. So we just can't thank each of you enough for tuning in this legislative session. And whether it's a lawmaker, whether it's a member or whoever, uh, we've heard from various groups who have tuned in. And so we just can't thank all those enough for listening and for contacting lawmakers when issues have um, come about. And so we just appreciate the work of our grassroots leaders um, in action. And that's what this whole organization is all about for 102 years. And so um, Shelby, thank you for just all the work that you have done. Um, I don't even know what to exactly say because you've done so much in Nashville that we don't even really understand or really know about. So thanks for all that work and for the great updates each week. So we will continue with the Farm Bureau on the Hill podcast. We've got some national issues that we would love to cover. Obviously, the Farm Bill, WOTUS, those are hot topics right now. So stay tuned for those issue updates um, over the next few weeks. And especially if the legislature does go into a special session, we'll make sure to um, update you on that. So Anything else, Shelby, that you want to say to the listeners? I don't think so. It's bittersweet. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks. I, I, this is something that has always been a resource, you know, getting the alert as a Farm Bureau member myself. But yep. to have this platform, I think hopefully we'll just continue to educate those and, and call upon them when we need them to take action. And I'm just thankful to get to do it with you. <laughs> well, good. I do think it's been a success sharing it publicly this year. And so I hope all those listeners have enjoyed um, getting notified via Apple Podcasts or Spotify or, or whatever it is. So um, if you have any questions, let us know. Be sure to check your alert for all the nitty gritty details that Shelby and her team will include. And we just thank you for listening and hope you all have a great weekend. Um, and we look forward to giving you an update. Who knows when? But <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to keeping you in the loop. So um, appreciate all those who are listening and We will see you next time.